0: Welcome to the Doc Talks Podcast, a conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. I'm your host, Ian Gillespie, and I'm here to ask the questions and find the answers you need to know. We want to help our listeners know how to prevent and detect illness and how to navigate our healthcare system. Be sure to subscribe to the Doc Talks podcast to stay up to date on new episodes and follow us on Twitter at St. Joseph's London or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Hello, I'm Ian Gillespie. Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast, brought to you by St. Joseph's Healthcare London. On today's episode, we're talking about the specialized healthcare services available for older adults in London and area. We all know as we age, our bodies and our minds are more susceptible to injury and disease. Life expectancy as a species has doubled in the past 100 years, and that's brought with it a lot of challenges to our healthcare. Geriatric care is focused on caring for older individuals. And St. Joseph's is the lead organization in providing and coordinating geriatric care in southwestern Ontario. And today, I'm talking with St. Joseph's Chief of Geriatrics, Dr. Sherry Lynn Kane, who's also the Chair of the Division of Geriatric Medicine at Western University. And also, we're joined by Roy Butler, St. Joseph's President and CEO. Thank you both for joining us on Doc Talks. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Ian. So, let's start with some general questions. I've got a stat here that was provided by the Canadian Frailty Network that states there are 1.2 million older adults living with frailty in Canada and about 3.75 million caregivers providing care to those older adults. First of all, I, maybe Dr. Kane will start with you. What are some of the most common conditions that we suffer as we age?
1: Age is a risk factor for most chronic conditions, so the ones we know, you know, cardiovascular disease and and arthritis, heart disease, diabetes. But in fact, having multiple chronic conditions or what's called multimorbidity is a risk factor for developing frailty. It's one of the risk factors.
0: So more complicated, more complex needs by the patients.
1: Yes. And so as geriatricians, what we would see is is actually we would kind of specialize in those people who are experiencing frailty. And uh, we would see them, you know, for consultation and involves change in their thinking skills, you know, be it suddenly in, in a delirium or more um, chronically changes in, in thinking over time with mild cognitive impairment or, or dementia. So we, those are just some, I mean, continence is another area that, you know, is more common as we age, causes a lot of difficulties for individuals and does impact function. So these are all of the um, kind of syndromes or some of the syndromes that we would see people for.
0: Right. And what kind of services does a geriatrician or a geriatric team offer that's different than other areas of medical care?
1: So what a geriatrician would do that, that is a bit different is uh, we would do what's called a comprehensive geriatric assessment. So we would look at each of the domains of a person's medical conditions, you know, especially the interplay of those conditions. Uh, We would look at medication issues, psychologic, social, functional, and also how the person, if they have a caregiver, how the caregiver is doing. And we would do an assessment of the person's kind of overall status according to those different areas. And then, you know, develop a plan in accordance with the patient's uh, values and priorities. That's
2: kind of the starting point for uh, geriatric. Yeah, thanks, Doctor May I just add to that uh, and just build upon that. You know, I think uh, at St. Joseph's and our specialized geriatric services, and you know, we have we have a full you know, multidisciplinary team who are trained and specialized in older adults with frailty. This, this is what they do. Um, this in uh, in some other organizations, specialized services. This would not be an area of specific expertise necessarily for the team. And see those individuals both on an outpatient basis, so people who would come to the hospital for a consultation or a visit, also in the community, so seeing uh, individuals in their home Mm. um, and where they live to provide consultation and expertise to support them to live higher quality of life and more fully at home, as well as we have specialized beds for people who do need an admission as part of their chair journey, that we also have that expertise um, in house. And the other you know, area that makes us specialize is we uh, have a mandate not just on providing clinical care, but on training clinicians. Um, so an educational um, mandate as well as conducting research in the areas of frailty and in geriatrics.
0: Hmm. And Roy, obviously, you're you're speaking about the the Southwest Frail Senior Strategy. Is that right? You were uh, you took leadership of that in 2019, designed to uh, improve outcomes and experiences for older adults. Do you have an idea of how many patients or individuals you process at St. Joseph's through the the, the frailty program? Uh, well, what I can what I can speak to is certainly the
2: growing number that we're seeing in our community right. and sort of that aging demographic we're seeing across the system. Um, so the number of individuals over the age of 65, uh, it's more than you know, kind of tripled in the last three to four right. decades. Today, approximately one in five are over the age of 65. In the next 25 years, that will become one in four. So 25% of our, of our population. And those age 75 and over who, who have a higher incidence of, of frailty is even growing at a more accelerated rate. So we are certainly seeing that happen um, across our system. We are uh, we've been a longstanding, what we say is a regional geriatric program. So there were regional geriatric programs that were set up across the province years ago and um, usually affiliated or always affiliated with also an academic university. So in our in our case, Western um, and had that role of providing um, regional expertise, support, training, consultation, planning of services uh, for the region. There is now a uh, provincial geriatric leadership, Ontario is what's called across that provides uh, guidance now across Ontario related to this with still specialized geriatric services regionally. And so for us, we're, we're that regional player in the Southwest. But to your, to your question, Ian, in addition to that, the former local health integration networks came to us and asked us to provide leadership on planning services for the Southwest for older adults with frailty. And, and that's what, in the last three years, we've been focusing on some key strategies around better meeting the needs of our community in um, multiple different aspects. Right.
1: Yeah, and Ian, I don't know if it, if it helps, but just in London, Middlesex, in 2020, there were 90,000 individuals living with frailty, and for 2030, that's projected to be 124,000. And that is just London, Middlesex. And we have numbers for each of the surrounding regions, in fact, the province.
0: Can you define frailty? How do we define frailty? When is an individual known as frailer?
1: So, so frailty is actually a, a syndrome. It's uh, wow. It has multiple contributing factors that ultimately lead to a person having decreased strength, decreased endurance, and increased vulnerability to um, having functional dependence and death. So that's kind of globally what frailty is, is, is kind of defined as. But it's that vulnerability to uh, changes in any kind of health or mental health or psychosocial, you know, just a a change can tip someone experiencing frailty to a greater level of, of dependence and, and kind of poorer outcomes. So at what point
0: then do we know, whether it's a family member or the individual themselves, that they need to see a geriatrician? What's that sort of tipping point?
1: Yeah, so, you know, uh, we work together with, you know, primary care uh, health providers, and there are a number of things that I think a primary health care provider could screen for in the office that would indicate that a person would benefit from comprehensive geriatric assessment in in any form. And so things like um, unintentional weight loss, changes in mobility or falls, family or friends reporting changes in cognition, the person becoming more functionally dependent in ways that they weren't before, people presenting to hospital multiple times or All of a sudden, the primary care provider seeing issues with medication that they had not seen before. All of these are, I think, markers that the person would benefit from comprehensive geriatric assessment.
0: Right. And how does one then go about accessing this specialized care?
1: Well, we we do need uh, the referral of a physician or a nurse practitioner. And we're very fortunate to have the, the geriatric uh, ambulatory um, access team or the GATT team uh, run through St. Joe's. It's really the kind of screening and triage team for geriatric services, not just medicine, but geriatric services across our region for both St. Joe's LHSC and the regional partners. And Roy, maybe you can speak to the work being done in the regions.
2: Too. Yeah, no, thanks, Dr. Ken yeah, so Dr. Keith referred to the, uh, the Geriatric Ambulatory Access Team, which is um, a relatively new entity, but was really set up to um, kind of centralize and coordinate referrals, triage those, and then make an assessment of, you know, what's the most appropriate pathway referral for that for this individual right now. Similarly, the work we're doing in the Southwest Braille Senior Strategy is setting up coordinated intakes for the various kind of sub-regions around us. And so again, one point of access, triage, look at what the needs of the individual are, and then start to make those appropriate referrals, which really just reduces the amount of time people are, are spending going through that process and gets them to those uh, services in a more efficient way.
0: And, and I imagine that for many patients, I mean, th- As you said, it's this kind of all these symptoms, these complex symptoms come together. So the care strikes me would be, in many cases, very, very long term. Is that fair to say? Dr. Kane is shaking her head, but it's not like I just go because I got a broken toe and it's done, right?
1: Well, I mean, it really, really depends because sometimes there is one or two kind of crucial contributing factors that can actually be reversed and a person's uh, health status improves significantly. Other times, uh, people, you know, require kind of a longer treatment plan, always done in conjunction with, you know, primary care. But, you know, then they may have another episode where they require, like, a repeat comprehensive assessment, and that may be in a different part of the system. So, I, I would say it's it's an ebb and flow, and it really okay. does depend on the contributing factors. I don't know what your thoughts are, right?
2: Yeah, no, Dr. Ken. I w- certainly uh, variability in terms of kind of what that need is and and who's needed. But I I take your point, Ian, yes. that it is you know it's not like breaking your ankle, right? Where where the the course of treatment is fairly standardized and time limited, and you didn't know you're going to be back on your feet in a certain amount of time especially for those older uh, individuals with multiple comorbidities and uh, multiple conditions. And in that case, yes, we're talking about a longer-term uh, plan that's going to sort of more um, multifactorial, I guess, um, in terms of supporting those individuals.
0: Yeah. Right. So, Dr. King, what about, and I have encountered these individuals in my own family, of course, and perhaps we all have, a family member, you realize that they're medical needs and concerns are growing, but they are reluctant to seek or accept care. They either are in denial or they're just stubborn or they don't want to change. How does one deal with a situation like that?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, so there could be multiple reasons that a person does not want to seek assessment. And, you know, that could be born out of fear and it could be born out of actually Um, decreased insight, which is our brain's ability to recognize our own kind of strengths and weaknesses. Mm. And so if we don't recognize, truly, we're not in denial, we simply do not recognize that there's a problem, why would we seek an assessment for something that we don't really perceive exists, which is a bit different than denial. And I know this trips families up quite a bit. There are people who have had you know, difficult experiences in the past with the healthcare system and um, have, you know, a real reticence. And, and so I think, first of all, empathy and understanding would be would be my, my first suggestion, trying to find out a little bit more about that resistance. And then um, maybe working with a healthcare provider who knows them the best that they may have a, a greater level of um, c- comfort with. But there's also a group of people who feel that the changes that they see are simply due to aging and there's nothing that can be done about it. Like Mm -hmm. that's just the way it is. Right. And uh, that's probably one of the more common myths that I uh, try to dispel because there are often a number of things that could help to either reverse completely slow or optimize things for both the patient and perhaps the caregivers such that they are going to be experiencing a better quality of life. And that's what, you know, we aim to do with the assessment.
0: Oh, well, that's good to hear. I, the pessimist in, in me just comes out and I think, well, it's all downhill from here, right? But speaking of myself, but. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it, it, <laughs> it, it does not have to be all downhill from here. And the I uh, think to Dr. K's point, the importance of The family as part of that circle and, and, or or whoever the caregiver may be, um, in those situations to ensure, you know, A, you're getting a full picture of what's going on, but also getting a more informed path about what those options are for the individual going forward as well. You know, I I have my own, I have my own family member who, uh, despite, despite that they should have uh, been in a different living situation that would have been safer for their physical health you know, just weren't going to leave their home until they needed to. And unfortunately, wait for that kind of critical incident to happen before that it forces upon them. Um, but so it's really just trying to, in the fr- up front, right, start to identify what are those um, decisions that maybe would help inform a better quality uh, as you go forward. And not to be afraid of it, but to just be aware of it and, and to work with the family uh, in those
0: decisions. And Roy, are we, I've heard this phrase, that well, everyone uses the phrase as an analogy, but there might be some tsunami of care needed for our aging population. Are, are we prepared, and particularly at St. Joe's and elsewhere, to deal with this coming need from our older individuals?
2: Yeah, so tsunami. I, I would say it's an appropriate term uh, in terms of what you know we're we are already seeing and what will continue to grow over the next uh, you know two decades. Um, as more and more higher percentage of people, a greater number of people are in that category of 65 and over, 75 and over. and it also forms a greater proportion of our overall population. So as I mentioned earlier, going from one in five to one in four um, over the next two decades. A couple of challenges and Dr. Kane, I'm sure will uh, you know seize this on the front the front end uh, front line um, as well. but uh, one is just our health human resources. Um, and the availability of both geriatricians, geriatric psychiatrists, care of the elderly physicians, uh, interdisciplinary, you know, physios, OTs, nursing, the, the gamut right now, where we are provincially is we have some of the highest vacancy rates in 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 healthcare right now than we've had the last kind of four or five years. And we need to continue to invest and grow that pool to meet the need of our aging community. One of the other areas is uh, suitable options for housing for individuals mm-hmm. as well. So assisted living that's affordable and accessible, um, supports in the home that allow people to uh, uh, live successfully at home through home and community care and community support services. And for some, they're going to need a long-term care environment where there's greater nursing hours available, greater supports available. But for a number of individuals, they could still live successfully at home if we had more options and supports in the community to uh, support them at home. So investment in long-term care, but also investment in supports to um, have people live successfully at home in different environments around assisted living are, are required to uh, to meet the need of what's going to happen over the grow over the next uh, two decades. But Dr. Ken, would welcome your, your insider on that as well.
1: Yeah. So... I, I mean, I agree with everything. I, I think the one thing that our healthcare system, for sure, and uh, our society in general is going to need to grapple with is is the degree of ageism that exists. And, uh, you know, there there is a, a negativity and, you know, kind of a blanketing of, uh, you know, I always say that the, the group 60 and older, which is, a, you know, an arbitrary chronologic cutoff that you know, is used more for population health uh, research, that group is one of the most heterogeneous groups in all of our population brackets. And so, yes, specialized services and, and housing options need to be there for the group most in need. But we forget that the older adult population is First of all, incredibly resilient, and I would suggest more resilient than than a lot of the other age groups. And they're a resource; they're an amazing resource. These are people with time and talent that I don't think I don't think it's appreciated. I don't know. I'd be interested in anyone else who who uh, could uh, talk about you know what it's going to take to move the needle on that. But. Um, you know, I'm on the steering committee for the Provincial Geriatric Leadership Ontario and the they're, we're we're trying to look at this resilience project because we do need to change the perception that, you know, anyone with white hair and a blue gown is going to be a drain on the healthcare system.
0: Or no hair.
1: Ah! <laughs> that keeps you safe for longer.
0: <laughs> That's just for my own benefit. That's very interesting. Yeah. And how do we change that vast public conception or misconception, eh?
1: Well, we're going to be, we're all walking into it. So mm-hmm. I, I would think that there would be incredible motivation to change it. I, I've been in the business a while. I wish I, wish I could say I, it was changing faster because really the, the numbers are increasing, but the numbers of equally talented, resilient, and resourceful older adults are increasing too.
2: Yeah, it's a great point, uh, yeah. point, Doctor Ken. It's interesting. We um, the fastest growing household type right now is multi generational households. Right, so we are, at all accounts, we're going to see that I think continue, uh, obviously, to grow for the reasons we've already talked about. on On the on the other side of that age dimension are younger adults who are living at home in their you know twenties, early thirties. And part of that is the, just the affordability right now on, on, on housing. But that sets up these multi-generational households and, in other parts of the world, a support system, right, and 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 an interplay where the older adults in that family are seen in a way, Dr. Keenan, I think is yours say, as having experience, knowledge, expertise, guidance, advice in terms of how we should, we should all be living that we need to uh, kind of continue to tap into
0: as well. Wow. Okay. Is there some? Of course, that we're going to segue into. It. It's, it's a political question in many ways, I guess. Right. I mean, we need uh, funding for these programs and so forth. Um, maybe one at a time. Are, are you optimistic about our ability to deal with this approaching tsunami? And I'm making air quotes with my fingers there, Roy. What do you think?
2: Yeah. Well, I'm. I'm. Got, I'm an optimist by nature, so I'll. I'll, I'll say. I'll say yes in that. I think there's recognition for the need that we're seeing some movement towards that. Although it may be late coming uh, on on those that are kind of the most frail, uh, we are seeing investment in increased hours of nursing within long-term care and investment in that. We are seeing a movement towards building of additional long-term care beds. Now, to Dr. Kane's point, those are the people at the very end of the spectrum of, of, of frailty and need, but we're seeing some there. The other thing that we're seeing more of, and maybe one of the silver linings of pandemic, is a much more integrated and partnering approach to the delivery of services. And um, so seeing community support services, home and community care, hospitals, primary care, really working in a more integrated way um, to focus on certain populations um, that we serve. And I don't, you know, that's, not, we're not going to back the bus up on that. That's going to continue to be the approach um, as we go forward. And Boulder, with Fidelity is one of those populations that are being looked at across many of the regions as a priority focus for the reasons we've talked about going forward in all those sectors. So I'm optimistic. It's not a short-term fix, but I'm optimistic in the medium to long-term that uh, we can
0: make investments
2: in the right
1: way and
0: work together. Excellent. Uh, Dr. Kane, are we well-positioned, do you think, for this these coming challenges?
1: Well, I think what there needs to be is more flexibility in how the money is spent. And um, I'm an observer, not an expert, that it's we need to think less about buckets and more about how can uh, money allocated be spent in the most effective way. So, you know, for instance, if, you know, hospitals are not funded for X program, but X program actually keeps more people, you know, receiving the care that they need in their homes and not in hospital, then that is an overall win for the patient, first of all, and the system, secondly, because, you know, so I could give lots and lots of examples, but, um, you know, I, I just, I hope we can get to a point where, at a government level, there's more flexibility in the buckets of of money that really, truly help to provide that integration uh, even more so that Roy was talking
2: about. Yeah, you're right, Dr. But Part of it is the funding mechanisms need to support <laughs> uh, that integrated approach. And um, we're not there yet as a system, for sure. And at the same time, I do see even our frail senior strategy you know our steering committee sitting around that table for the Southwest has representation from every subregion and from every sector, and people come to the table not territorial but looking at system solutions for how do we serve our older adults with frailty better um, um, as we go forward, and I think that will continue to be continue to strengthen. Excellent.
0: Well, I think we've uh, we've touched on a lot of the issues and we've uh, raised a lot of questions, and hopefully we've. We've uh, answered some too, but uh, I want to thank you both, Dr. Kane, Roy Butler, for joining us on the Doc Talks Podcast. Thank,
1: thank you for the opportunity.
0: That's it for this episode of the Doc Talks Podcast. Thanks for joining us, and join us next time when we'll continue our conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. Be sure to subscribe. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter at St. Joseph's London, or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Until then, stay healthy.